We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 24 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, March 24th, 2021, the day before the NBA trade deadline, i.e. the day before the Wizards perhaps will, or at least should, blow themselves up like Gus Fring in Breaking Bad. Is it time to blow up the Washington Wizards? The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, that team. Thank you, Stephen A. What a debacle on Tuesday night. For the Wiz, a gutless, spineless, pathetic effort in a loss at the New York Knicks. You talk about being feeble. You talk about being submissive. The Wizards allowed themselves to be violated by the Knicks on Tuesday night. Do I think the Wiz will blow it all up before the trade deadline? No. 
they don't seem to have any desire to trade away Bradley Beal. And I get that, but you gotta wonder where his head is at. Does he even want to be here anymore? Is he about to become the next NBA star to be disgruntled and demand his way out of town? And Beal, let me make this clear, not exactly an innocent little angel in all this. He's been really bad over the last two games. Much more on all of this later in the podcast. Anyway, happy Wednesday. Yeah, happy thoughts uh, on this Wednesday. Good to have you with us on the Al Galdi podcast, your DC Sports Express every weekday, Monday through Friday, out by 5 a.m. for you, the DC Sports Warrior. Speaking of happy thoughts, we have another sign, perhaps another trial balloon from Jason Wright, that the Washington football team may go with the name Washington football team permanently. Uh, that to me is not a happy thought. I'll stand off on that in just a bit. Lots of other items on the Washington football team on this installment of the podcast, including Mac Jones having his pro day on Tuesday. Yet another failed Washington second round pick being completed with the free agent departure of Ryan Anderson and a special guest, Washington football team insider Ben Standig of the Athletic DC. And among the items I'm going to be getting into with Ben, a very juicy nugget that he reported on Monday. Perhaps he came across this. Washington is exploring using Steven Montez like the New Orleans Saints have used Taysom Hill. Yes, you heard that right. Steven Montez. Is he about to become, you know, Steven slash Montez, you know, from the days of Cordell Stewart with the Pittsburgh Steelers back in the 90s? Steven Montez. Is he about to be deployed in a progressive, advanced way a la the Saints with Taysom Hill. We'll get into that and a whole lot more with Ben a little bit later on on the podcast. Also, the Nationals. Is it happening again with Carter Keboom? Is he for a second consecutive season being yanked from being the everyday third baseman before he ever actually is the everyday third baseman? Interesting development for the Nats on Tuesday with Starling Castro and not Keboom starting at third base. I'll get into that. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got a ton of feedback from you guys on our Maryland basketball Mark Turgeon conversation on Tuesday's podcast. Tweet from Lester Martin, let the talent play. Turgeon has coached many at Maryland with NBA skills who could run up and down the court and put up massive points, but they are relegated to boring set offense and firing off shots with one second on the shot clock repeatedly. Thank you, and time for a change. Yeah, I have not liked the slow, Big Ten-like pace uh, at which Maryland has played basketball under the turds. Although I think this past season for Maryland, that was the way to go because the team uh, wasn't overly talented. So when you're not oozing with talent, when you're lacking in talent, you want to have fewer possessions per game. Playing a slower style allows for that. I think playing slow this past season made sense for Maryland. But no doubt, in previous seasons, you know, really you go back a couple of seasons, that 2018-2019 team, the team that lost to LSU in the second round on the Tremont Waters layup, uh, that team, for sure, for sure, should have been playing a whole lot faster than it was. Tweet from Word of Josh. He, as in Turgeon, has had 10 years and made one Sweet 16. Team regularly stumbles down the stretch. Time to move on. Are you sensing a pattern? Coach Negative, it is time. His 10 seasons are enough of a track record, and it's time to move on. He is just not the right fit for this program and where it should want to go. He should be allowed to find a new home. Larry says, lifelong Maryland fan here, longer than you've been alive. 
Turgeon made the mistake of pushing his chips in for the Mitchell twins who were both recruiting disasters. Yes, they were. Left the cupboard bare for big men. Last year's team was Final Four worthy. Keep him for now. So the Turge has a supporter in Larry. Uh, Mark Pinnell on Twitter. Turf should be better than one Sweet 16 in 10 years. Uh, yes, the Turf should be. But remember, it's not just one Sweet 16 over Turgeon's 10 seasons. It's one Sweet 16 since the last Gary Williams Sweet 16 of 2003. There is a larger conversation to be had of. We are now at a generation in which Maryland has made just one Sweet 16. 2004 through 2021, one Sweet 16 appearance. That's it. Mark Turgeon's team in 2015-2016. That's it. The lone Sweet 16 team for the Maryland Terrapins over the last generation. Uh, email from Michael King. Our supposed basketball school destroyed by a football school. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. The last two NCAA tournament appearances for Maryland, the Terrapins losing to a football first school. LSU in 2019, Alabama in 2021. But continues, Michael. Big 10 propaganda. Turgeon mediocre at everything he does. Mediocre coach, less than mediocre recruiter. That's a bad combo. Michael then actually sent me a second email, an apology email for venting. It's okay, Michael. I'm here for you. You're allowed to vent to me. So this struck me on Tuesday, thinking about where we are with Maryland basketball and Mark Turgeon. Mark Turgeon is Marvin Lewis. I I think that's the best comp in terms of who Mark Turgeon is as an NFL head coach. Marvin Lewis as Cincinnati Bengals head coach was solid, was respectable, was good at coaching defense. Marvin Lewis got the Bengals to postseasons, but never did anything in those postseasons. And Marvin Lewis essentially ended up being for Cincinnati, a high floor, low ceiling head coach. And that to me is exactly what Turgeon is. Like if you're being objective about it and you're assessing this thing soberly, you're looking at Turgeon and you are acknowledging the good because it's not like it's all bad, but you're also recognizing a bigger picture of where exactly are we going here? And Turgeon to me is Marvin Lewis. And so you as a program have got to decide, well, we could do a lot worse, but we sure could be doing better. And the onus is on us now to figure out a way to do better. And that's where I'm at with Mark Turgeon. You know, I'm not just saying fire him because you better have someone better in mind. So I don't know where Maryland is at with that. Can you find somebody better? Yes, you can. It may take some aggressive thinking. It may take being bold. It may take being outside the box. But no doubt, like you shouldn't just swallow and accept what Maryland has become here. The one sweet 16 over Turgeon's 10 seasons. The mere two sweet 16s since the national championship in 2002. That's not the way this should be. This program is better than that. I mean, you think about Maryland basketball, not just the great history of it, but this area, this oh-so-fertile recruiting area, Washington, D.C., Baltimore. Like, you combine those two regions, it is so rich, this area, in terms of high school basketball. There's no reason that Maryland basketball shouldn't be a perennial Sweet 16 team or at least Sweet 16 contender. Like, come on. Stop thinking small. Stop being smaller than you actually are. I get that it is kind of dopey that we judge college basketball coaches and programs by the one-and-done NCAA tournament. I do recognize that. Like, that is kind of a messed up way to judge things. But that's the way that we do it. That's the way that it's been done for decades now. But the thing is, it's not just about 
the lack of advancing in NCAA tournaments. It's not just about the lack of Sweet 16s. It's also about an overall lack of high achievement for Maryland under Mark Turgeon, a lack of truly big wins, a lack of true signature moments, a lack of a style of play that has endeared the team to the area. You know, one of the really, I think, troubling things for Maryland basketball is that it's not the big deal in this area like it was during those peak Gary Williams years. If you talk about like the hierarchy of sports teams in this area that people care about the most, number one for decades, of course, has been the Washington football team. But what's interesting to me is that number two has changed. And, you know, like every, I don't know, four to eight years, it's been something different. And at various points, like right now, for instance, I would say the number two team in this area in terms of interest, in terms of what people care about is the Nationals. Prior to that, I would say the Capitals. When the Wizards were good, you know, especially 2016, 2017 in there, when they made that game seven against the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference semis, you certainly could have made the case the Wizards were number two, uh, especially also during the Gilbert Arenas years. And Maryland basketball was the number two sports topic in this area during those peak Gary Williams years. When Maryland weighed the back-to-back Final Fours, 2001-2002, when Maryland was a perennial Sweet 16 team, when Maryland-Duke was one of the biggest rivalries in college basketball, maybe the biggest rivalry in college basketball, Maryland basketball in this area was a huge deal. And that's not the case anymore. It's kind of fallen off the map. People just aren't as invested in it. It's nowhere near the topic of conversation that it has been. It is a big deal over the last, say, 48 hours because of what happened against Alabama on Monday night and just because of this overall scenario with Mark Turgeon. But like that to me would be concerning if I'm Maryland Athletics. Our basketball program was a really big deal in the Washington, D.C. area about 18 years ago. And it's nowhere near as big of a deal now. And you got to wonder about that. Like, why is that? What happened to us where Maryland basketball was bigger than the Wizards, bigger than the Capitals, bigger than anything other than the Washington football team? And now if you're doing a ranking, there's no way you can make the case that Maryland basketball is the number two team in the D.C. area. Maryland's got a real decision to make here. And I tweeted this on Tuesday, and I think this in so many ways captures Mark Turgeon's 10 seasons as Terrapin's head coach. It is hysterical that we right now have the following two consensus opinions. Number one, Mark Turgeon in this now concluded Maryland season did, if not the best coaching job he's done with the Terps, then among the best coaching jobs with the Terps, right? Everyone basically agrees on that. Mark did a really nice job this season with a roster that wasn't exactly loaded. Now, of course, you say, well, whose fault is it that the roster wasn't exactly loaded? And the answer is Mark Turgeon. He's the recruiter. He's the head coach. But, but you do say that, right? Like he did do a really good job coaching up the talent that he had this season. And of course, he was not shy about telling us that late on Monday night when he said, we maximize the talent we had here extremely well. I still don't like that he said that. You know, it may be true. You don't say that. You don't talk yourself up in a moment like that and talk down your players like that. But anyway, Opinion number one right now that basically everyone agrees with is Mark Turgeon did a really good job coaching up the talent that he had this past season. But number two is it would be not unreasonable at all for Maryland to fire Mark Turgeon. So think about that. On the one hand, everyone agrees, yeah, did a really good job this season. On the other hand, everyone agrees, yeah, it's not unreasonable to say he should be fired. Like we can debate whether he should be or not. Okay. Like people can kind of be on different sides of the fence on that. 
But no one is saying, boy, that's insane to even suggest that Mark Turgeon should be fired. No, everyone kind of understands, yeah, this kind of a conversation now, isn't it? You know, where is that contractually, where the program is in terms of the lack of advancement in these NCAA tournaments? Like, yeah, it is a conversation. And that, to a T, captures the Mark Turgeon decade with Maryland basketball. High floor, low ceiling. Good enough to stick around, but never great enough to do anything special. That's the way that it's gone for years for Maryland basketball with Mark Turgeon. Yes, you can do better. I think the Terps should definitely try to do better. I wouldn't just recklessly say, you're fired, and then not have a plan. You better have a plan for something better. But there's no doubt, you can do better. And I hope that Maryland does. Among the other emails I got regarding Mark Turgeon came from John Grandlin, great friend of this podcast, master real estate agent in the DMV. Uh, John wrote, keeping Turgeon is like picking 20th in the NFL draft every year. I hear you. I hear you. And that's the way it's kind of felt for Maryland basketball for way too long. You know what else has gone on for way too long? Outrageous commissions in real estate. You sell a home, you got to worry about how much of what you're getting back you have to give to the real estate agent. John Grandland is eliminating that. That which has been a staple in real estate for as long as we can remember. Outrageous commissions. John Grandland is wiping those off the table. John G with Real Broker will sell your house for free. That's right, for free. Zero commission. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. So you're not getting gypped on services here. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure you that you're not hunting for buyers for months on end. And when John finds you an offer for, say, $500,000, that $15,000 that you would normally pay to your listing agent stays right in your pocket. And then John helps you find the home of your dreams and everyone feels right at home. Expansive services at the lowest commission possible, zero. You can't do better. You can't go lower than zero. This is revolutionary. John Grandland is changing the game when it comes to real estate in the DMV. To find out more about this program, to find your home's value, visit the following site, johngsellsforfree.com. Website says it all, right? John G sells for free. Dot com. Or better yet, call John. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. Zero commission. John G. Sells for free. So the Washington football team made an announcement on Tuesday. The announcement was essentially a last call for fan submissions for a new name for the team. Fans have until Monday, April 5th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to send in suggested team names to WashingtonJourney.com. And the team said that a whole lot of submissions already have been put forth, said that more than 15,000 submissions from every state and territory of the U.S. and from 60 countries across six continents have been received since the launch of this site last August. Washington, I think, has actually done a really good job in trying to involve the fan base in the search for the new name. Now, to what extent fan input actually matters, we don't know, okay? I tend to think that, like, the team is listening to us as fans, but also ultimately is going to do as the team feels like it wants to do. But I think this is good. Like, you have to undergo this change. You might as well have fun with it. You might as well make a thing out of it. 
you might as well use it to re-engage your fan base, a fan base, so much of which, right, has felt disenchanted for so long because the team has been so bad for so long. So I I like that the Washington football team has done this, even though, you know, a lot of this may end up being just kind of a token gesture and Danny and his team are going to end up doing whatever they want to do in terms of what the new name ends up being. But the more relevant item regarding the search for the new name was this on Tuesday. The team president, Jason Wright, spoke with Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN. And Jason Wright again put it out there that the name Washington football team could end up being the permanent name. Told Keim that the name Washington football team has gone from, say, a generic placeholder to a name that's now being strongly considered to be the permanent one, said right to Kime, quote, there is a set of folks that have warmed to the Washington football team. Some of the things that are emerging from that are the Washington football team has something that ties deeply to our history. It feels like that isn't jettisoning all the things we have been in the past, whereas something that's completely new might feel that way. It's important for a substantial part of our fan base to feel that this is a continuation of something versus a complete reset, something brand new, end quote. This is not the first time that Jason Wright has put it out there that Washington football team could end up being the permanent name. Wright told Kime last November 19th that the name Washington football team could be permanent. Quote, it's definitely in the running. I don't think anything is off the table. With this one, people are excited about the idea of a club has an identity rooted solely in the area it represents. Maybe it's football team or it's football club. We need to get underneath the why. So no matter what direction we go, we can pull on the heartstrings of folks. End quote. So that was right back in November. Uh, the next month, in fact, December 1st, Jason Wright did this uh, WFT Fansgiving which was a virtual roundtable with prominent Washington football team fans on Twitter. Again, engaging the fan base. I thought this was a smart thing to do. Uh, Washington football team fans are all over the place on social media. You shouldn't ignore them. You might as well get in the mix with them, you know, splash around with them. I thought that was this was good by Jason Wright. But anyway, at this Fansgiving this past December 1st, Jason Wright did say that the name Washington football team would remain through the 2021 season. So. The name is already going to end up lasting for two years, not the one year. And now multiple times, Wright has told Kime, yeah, Washington football team could end up being the name permanently. I will say this. I have been consistent with this. I am totally fine with Washington football team as a temporary name, even for multiple seasons. Like, I understand this rebranding process takes time. It's not simple. It does get complicated, especially with all the legal mumbo jumbo, copyrights, etc. So if this has to take a few years and you got to go buy a Washington football team for a few years, that's fine. Take your time. All that matters is that you get this right. But I want no part. I have never wanted any part of Washington football team as the permanent name. Football team is not a name. If you go with Washington football team permanently, you are essentially the team with no name. You are punting on having a name. Football team is not a name. Pick a name. It's not that hard. Plenty of teams have changed names over the years. 
it's happened across all sports, okay? The Houston Oilers became the Tennessee Titans. The Cleveland Browns became the Baltimore Ravens. NBA, NHL, you've had similar things, right? Charlotte Bobcats became the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, I mean, in hockey, it's happened a million times. The Quebec Nordiques became the Colorado Avalanche. The Atlanta Thrashers became the Winnipeg Jets. Like, teams change names. And sometimes, obviously, they change cities. But in this case, we're just staying here, just changing the name. Pick a name. It's not impossible. It's not that hard, okay? Football team is not a name. A permanent name of Washington football team would be embarrassing. We're not the football team, okay? Like, that just sounds weird. It sounds strange. And it would require us to continue to call the team Washington because football team is just dumb. Nobody, and I, when I say nobody, I literally mean nobody calls the team the football team. You, you, if, if, if you say that or you hear that, that's being done in like a sarcastic way. No, nobody says, hey, let's talk, let, let's go watch the football team game. Or, hey, what do you think about the football team? Well, who do you think should be the football team's starting quarterback this next season? Nobody says that, okay? Nobody says that. So you have to call the team Washington. And Washington is an awkward and cumbersome way of referring to your team. It's one thing for people outside of this area, non-fans of the team, to say Washington, because those people were already saying Washington when the name of the team was Redskins. But for us who are fans, for us here locally, it seems distant and it seems way too formal to continually have to refer to the team as Washington, okay? You never call your home teams by the home city. You call your home teams by those teams' as nicknames and almost always by an abbreviation of the nicknames. We never say Washington. We say Nationals or Nats. We say Capitals or Caps. We say Wizards or Wiz. We say Terrapins or Terps. You know, that's the other thing with Washington. It's a three-syllable word. I know this sounds kind of funny, but to me, this stuff matters. Washington is an onerous word to say. It's three syllables. Wa-shing-ton. You want a one-syllable means of referring to your team. Again, Nats, Caps, Wiz, Terps, Skins. You don't have that with Washington. Every time we talk about the team, we have to say Washington. I talk about Washington all the time on this podcast, and I can't tell you how much I hate having to constantly say Washington. It doesn't feel natural. You know, it, it doesn't feel like the way things should be. It's like calling your parents by their first names. Now, I guess if you have a messed up or screwed up relationship with your parents, maybe you do call them by their first names, okay? But otherwise, you don't say, hey, Robert, hey, Barbara, how are you? You know, you say, hey, dad, hey, mom, you know, what's for dinner? That kind of a thing. Why? Because that's a familiar, close way of speaking to them and communicating with them, right? You are close to them. You have this relationship with them. So you don't refer to them as their formal names. Same thing with your area teams. You're a fan of the team. You don't call it Washington. It doesn't feel natural to call it Washington. There isn't some perfect new name. There is no magic bullet solution to this issue. There isn't like a one right answer where once you identify that, okay, everyone is 100% on board. Whichever name you go with, there's going to be a segment of the fan base that's against that name. But here's what I do know. People will get used to the new name because that's the way things work. Nobody likes change. Everyone whines and complains when there is change. And then what ultimately happens is everyone gets used to the change far quicker than anyone ever thought would happen. And so whether you go with Red Wolves or Warriors or Warhawks or whatever, okay, and some names are better than others, no doubt, but it's not like they all are terrible either. And some of them actually have some cool affiliation to this area, to this region. Pick a name, 
Okay? Pick a name. Don't punt on the name. Don't do the soccer thing of the Washington Football Club or FC Washington. We're not a soccer team, okay? This is a football team, American football, National Football League. So stop trying to shove soccer stuff down our throats, all right? I mean, I got nothing against soccer, but this push from some people, I'll just call it Washington FC. Why? So we can sound like we should be playing in the MLS? Like, no, we're in the NFL, all right? Stop trying to take your case and put them on the rest of us, all right? Pick a name, go with the name, rebrand it, put thought into it, keep burgundy and gold, which we know they're doing and which you need to do, all right? You should never change those colors. Always keep burgundy and gold. But don't go with Washington football team. I don't want that. It doesn't feel right. We can't keep having to say Washington and football team isn't a name. Point blank, period. One more thing on all this. So we know it's going to be Washington football team for the upcoming season. I do think this, and I think this could actually be kind of cool. So one season, of course, as Washington football team, it resulted in what? An NFC East title. Yes, the division was terrible. Yes, Washington only ended up going 7-9, to but it ended up being a much better season than I think most people thought, especially when you consider that the team at one point was 1-5. and It would be really nice if you end up having a two-year run as the Washington football team, and the two years end up being much better than anyone ever could have realistically hoped for. Like, what if Washington wins the NFC East again in 2021? And by the way, I don't think that's very far-fetched. I think it would be a really nice historical item to have as, hey, the team went through a name change for two years was known as the Washington football team. And those two years ended up being really good years, back-to-back NFC East titles or back-to-back playoff appearances, you know, whatever ends up happening. But like sometimes in life, right, you have these things that are brief, but end up being actually really good, you know, like a a shooting star, you know, like an outrageous, like a shooting star, like a passionate fling, you know, it only lasted for two seasons, but golly gee, those two seasons were a whole lot better than most people thought they would be. And moving forward, whenever we look back upon Washington football team, we don't think about this painful process of changing the name or this awkward process of changing the name. We think about, yeah, Washington football team. The team was known as that for two seasons, and those ended up being two really nice seasons. You know, when you see WFT 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, you don't think about some weird name, some bizarre placeholder. You think about a nice, feel-good two-season run. The first two seasons with Ron Rivera as head coach, with Don Ron running the football operations, and you think about surprising success, and you think about the program getting back on track. You know, it's not unlike, I mean, to make a player comp here, it could be maybe like Adrian Peterson with the Washington football team, right? AP only ended up playing for Washington for two seasons. But when I bring up Adrian Peterson, you know, I, I, I just said the name Adrian Peterson. What comes to your mind? You say to yourself, you know what? He was here for two years. He did a nice job. You know, you don't look at Adrian Peterson as, man, that guy was way past his prime and Washington signed him, should have never brought him on board. And he did nothing for the franchise. You say, yeah, those two seasons in which he was here didn't turn out so great, but he himself did a really good job. He was a commendable, dependable, respectable, productive performer for Washington for two years. And it would be great to have another successful season in 2021, change the name, go to a new name, pick a name, but we could look back forever 
on Washington football team as this two-season thing during which things actually weren't so bad. I think that would be a nice thing from a legacy standpoint. And listen, from just purely a dollars and cents standpoint, you could continue to sell Washington football team merchandise because that would be sort of a retro thing that people might get a kick out of wearing of again. Hey, for two seasons, the team was the Washington football team. And those two seasons actually ended up being quite nice. It may well be that the Washington football team, there's that name again, does nothing more at quarterback in this 2021 offseason. You sign Ryan Fitzpatrick, you have Fitzmagic, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, Steven Montez, those four guys very much so could end up being the four guys in training camp this summer. But of course, it's not an impossibility for Washington to do something more at quarterback. Contractually speaking, Taylor Heineke is cuttable. Kyle Allen is cuttable. I don't anticipate either guy being cut, but you never know. And you also never know what's going to end up being available to you come the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. Washington has that number 19 overall pick. Nobody expects any of the supremely highly touted quarterbacks, i.e. Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, probably Justin Fields too, to make it anywhere close to number 19. But again, you never know. I mean, and when I say that, I'm talking really about Fields. Like Lawrence, we know, is going number one. Wilson is almost certainly going number two. But then after that, things maybe do get a little unpredictable. You don't know until you know. And of course, I haven't even brought up the likes of Trey Lance and yes, Mac Jones. Speaking of Mac Jones, the Alabama quarterback. So Alabama's pro day was on Tuesday. And among those reportedly in attendance was Washington's general manager, Martin Mayhew. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that Mayhew was there specifically to look at Mac Jones. Alabama has a ton of NFL talent that's going to be selected in the 2021 draft. If you caught the latest mock draft from Bucky Brooks of NFL Media, you saw him mocking the Alabama receiver, the Heisman Trophy winner, Devontae Smith, to the Washington football team at number 19. Now, close your eyes for a moment and think about that. Devontae Smith in the same receiving core as Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel, Ryan Fitzpatrick chucking the football all over the place. It is a little exciting, isn't it, to think about what the Washington offense could be like in 2021 were Devontae Smith to end up being taken by Washington at number 19 overall. But for our purposes for this conversation, it's hard to ignore, right, that Martin Mayhew was at that Mac Jones Pro Day. Remember, it was just a few weeks ago, March 12th, that Trey Lance's Pro Day took place for North Dakota State, and NFL insider Albert Breer of the MMQB reported that both Mayhew and offensive coordinator Scott Turner were to be attending Lance's Pro Day. So maybe Washington is just simply doing due diligence, or maybe, just maybe, Washington is still very serious about potentially taking a quarterback with that number 19 overall pick. Now, a few things stood out to me regarding Mac Jones' Pro Day on Tuesday. Number one, there were some official numbers recorded for Mac Jones. Uh, numbers were submitted to the NFL from Alabama's Pro Day uh, for Mac Jones, and those numbers included the following, according to NFL insider Tom Pelissero of NFL Network and NFL.com. So the Mac Jones height ends up being 6'2 and 5 eighths of an inch. Uh, not surprising, Bama had listed Jones as being 6'3", but if you're curious about his height, to whatever extent quarterback height matters, and truthfully, it doesn't matter a ton, see Russell Wilson, see Drew Brees, see Kyler Murray, but you'd rather the guy be taller than shorter, and 6'2 and 5'8", it's just confirmation of what Bama had the guy listed as was more or less accurate. Again, 
six foot three. How about though the 40 yard dash times for Mac Jones at the Bama Pro Day? This caught me off guard. So Mac Jones ran 40 yard dash times at the Pro Day of 4.72 and 4.68. That surprised me. That was faster than I thought those 40 times would be. Patrick Mahomes, for comparison's sake, at the 2017 Combine, he ran a 4.840. Josh Allen at the 2017 Combine, he ran a 4.7540. These are two of the more mobile quarterbacks in the NFL right now, right? In Mahomes and Allen. Mac Jones' two recorded 40-yard dash times at the Bama Pro Day on Tuesday, faster than both the Mahomes and Allen 40-yard dash times at the 2017 Combine. Now look, 40-yard dash times are not the end-all be-all. You can't take these 40-yard times as gospel. And obviously, there's a difference between how fast you run in shorts in a sprint versus how fast you run with pads on in a game, like different circumstances. And playing the quarterback position isn't just about straight line speed. We get that. You know, when it comes to your mobility, it's about wiggle. It's about vision. It's about a feel for the moment. You know, all all that kind of a thing. So I'm not here to tell you that Mac Jones is going to be more mobile, more impactful as a runner than Mahomes, than Allen. But if you're wondering, well, is Mac Jones worthy of a first round pick? Would Mac Jones make sense for Washington at number 19 overall? Understand the guy is more mobile. He's faster then you may think Dwayne Haskins, if you're curious, at the 2019 Combine, he ran a 5-0-4-40, okay? And we did see with Wayne Wayne, especially once he got his body in better shape, he actually could run at the NFL level. Mac Jones is already there in terms of his 40 time, 4-7-2-4-6-8 at the Bama Pro Day on Tuesday. Now, also regarding Mac Jones on Tuesday was this, the latest mock draft from ESPN NFL draft analyst Mel Kiper Jr. came out, his mock draft 3.0. And he did have for a second consecutive mock, Washington taking the Virginia Tech offensive tackle, Kristen Darasau, uh, with the number 19 overall pick. Darasau local is from Upper Marlboro. Uh, Hokies listed him as being 6'5", 314. But when it came to the quarterbacks in the first round, Mel did have four quarterbacks going in the top four. Uh, Mel includes trades now in his mocks. But five quarterbacks in the top 15, and I say it that way, and we talked about this on the podcast recently, the Mel Kuyper Jr. and Todd McShay mocks for ESPN recently have had like all of the first round quarterbacks going in the top 10. Like Mel's recent mock prior to this latest one, so Mock Draft 2.0 came out on February 25th. That mock had five quarterbacks in the top nine. This mock had five quarterbacks in the top 15. Four in the top four, yes, but Mac Jones falling, if you want to use that word, to the New England Patriots at number 15. What we've discussed regarding Washington potentially taking a quarterback in the first round, right, has been, well, who realistically is going to be available to you? Every mock has got Trevor Lawrence going number one to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Every mock has Zach Wilson going number two to the New York Jets or somebody trading up to number two to take Zach Wilson. And then beyond that, it's a little murkier, right? So Mel in this most recent mock does have Justin Fields going to the Carolina Panthers at number three, does have Trey Lance going to the Atlanta Falcons at number four. You know, Lance has been all over the place in these mocks. It wasn't that long ago that Todd McShay and his mock 1.0 had Trey Lance falling to Washington at number 19. But it's notable to me that Mel has uh, Mac Jones falling to the Patriots at number 15, because Mel's previous mock had Mac Jones going eighth to the Carolina Panthers. 
Mel has got Mac Jones falling a bit. So 15, I mean, you say, all right, if Washington really wanted one of these guys, you know, it's going to be almost impossible to go from 19 to say the top five. I mean, like, what are you going to do? You're going to give up every first round pick from now until, you know, 2040. I mean, I know you can only trade three first round picks at a time, but you get the idea. Like, no, Washington is not going to be doing something like that. But trading up from 19 to 15 or 19 to 14, if you want to get in front of the Patriots, because this is the second time that Mel has mocked Mac Jones to the Pats, that is doable, you know, or at least that's more doable, more realistic than going from 19 to having a top five pick. So if Mac Jones falls to 19 or falls to close enough to 19, is he worthy of Washington trading up to take him? Mac Jones does reek, right, of a high floor, low ceiling prospect. He's kind of the opposite of Trey Lance in that regard. Trey Lance, you could see end up being awful. You could also see him ending up being outstanding. Like it just, there's so much variance with Trey Lance. There's such a wide range of what Trey Lance could end up being. And of course, there's so much unknown with Trey Lance with him having played just one game in 2020 and really having played for North Dakota State for essentially just one season. And of course, there's that aspect to enter in the equation, North Dakota State, an FCS program, not an FBS program. But with Mac Jones, I mean, you have to say a few things. So we mentioned the speed. You also have to mention the guy killed it for Alabama. Like, I know you could say, well, it's Alabama. He's playing with all these great players around him. That's true. But he's also competing in the SEC against the best players, the best defenses, the best teams in the country. And it's not just that Mac Jones did well. It's that he did all time well. Mac Jones finished his time at Bama with a career completion percentage of 77.4, the best in FBS history. You look at what Mac Jones did in the college football playoff for this past college football season. The semifinal win over Notre Dame, 25 of 30 for 297, four touchdowns, no picks. The national championship game blowout of Ohio State, 36 of 45 for 464, five touchdowns, no interceptions. Like again, even if you say, well, it's Alabama. Well, he's throwing to Devontae Smith and people like that. Okay, fine. He's also competing against the best players and teams in the country. And he's not just putting up good numbers. He's putting up video game numbers. Mac Jones has. So I think you have to mention that. You also have to say this too, in terms of like who he was throwing to. Yeah, Devontae Smith this past season. Yeah, there've been some others over the last few years, but like Jalen Waddell, one of Bama's top receivers, he missed a good chunk of this past season. He suffered a fractured right ankle on October 24th and a win at Tennessee, did not play again until the national championship game. So it's not like Mac Jones had all of his horses throughout the year. I'm open to Mac Jones. I'm open to anything. I've been very consistent on this. I'm not a poo-pooer. I'm not someone who's just dismissing these options. When you are quarterback needy, as our team has been, you should be open-minded to anything. And so, yeah, heck yeah, Martin Mayhew should be attending these pro days. And yeah, heck yeah, Washington should still be open to taking a quarterback in the first round. I don't expect that to happen. I do think it's a lot less likely now that Washington has signed Ryan Fitzpatrick. But like I said on Tuesday's podcast, there's what we think in, say, March, and then there's what ends up happening September through December. And a year ago at this time, what we thought for Washington at quarterback, that ended up being very different versus what ended up happening for Washington at quarterback. So I would not be set at all in, well, this is the way it's going to be, and that's just the way it has to be. Like, no. Right now, yes, it seems Fitzpatrick, Heineke, Allen, that's your quarterback mix for 2021. But just because we think that way in March doesn't mean it ends up being that way come the season. 
Tuesday was another largely quiet day for the Washington football team in free agency, but it wasn't an entirely quiet day for the Washington football team in free agency. Washington actually did announce a couple of signings on Tuesday, officially announced the re-signings of Jared Norris and Danny Johnson. So technically, Washington made a move at linebacker on Tuesday. We're still waiting for Washington to truly address the linebacker position this offseason. That's among the topics I'm going to be getting into with our special guest, Ben Standig of The Athletic DC, coming up next segment. Uh, Jared Norris re-signed. He had been an unrestricted free agent. He is a linebacker, but he is far much more a special teams ace. Jared Norris is going into his age 28 season. Washington originally signed him as an unrestricted free agent February 13th, 2020. He actually was waived in the cut down to 53 for last season, but then was signed to the practice squad the next day. Played in 11 games for Washington last regular season, but on just seven defensive snaps the entire regular season. He is a special teams guy. He played a bunch on special teams, ended up playing on 42% of Washington's special team snaps. Jared Norris is, yes, wait for it, uh, someone who played for Ron Rivera with the Carolina Panthers. Uh, prior to coming to Washington, Norris had spent his only three NFL seasons, 2016 through 2018, with Ron and the Panthers, who signed Norris as an undrafted free agent out of Utah in May 2016. He actually did not play in the NFL at all during the 2019 season. So Jared Norris is back on board, and so too is Danny Johnson, re-signed as an unrestricted free agent corner. Uh, It was reported by Ben back on March 11th that Washington would not be tendering Johnson as a restricted free agent. So he was supposed to be a restricted free agent, but you need to tender a guy for him to carry over into restricted free agency. Washington chose not to do that, uh, let him become an unrestricted free agent, but still does end up bringing him back into the mix here. Uh, 2021 season going to be Johnson's age 26 season. Danny Johnson first stood out to us during training camp and the preseason in 2018. He was one of those classic summer heroes for Washington back in 2018. Undrafted free agent at a Southern University in 2018. He's been with Washington the last three years, but he's barely played uh, on defense. His rookie season, he ended up playing on just six and a half percent of Washington's defensive snaps. 2019, he played in just two games due to injury issues. And then this past season, 2020, Johnson played in 14 games, but did not play on a single defensive snap. He was, though, Washington's primary kickoff return man for a second time in three seasons. And it's actually been okay on kickoff returns. Not special, not dynamic. You can do better. I'm actually kind of curious. Curtis Samuel has done kickoff returns, did kickoff returns for a few seasons for the Panthers. I wonder if Washington is at all open to that for Samuel in 2021. But Johnson This past regular season was 13th among players with at least 15 kickoff returns in yards per kickoff return at 22. But to me, the most interesting development regarding the Washington football team on Tuesday was the expected becoming official Ryan Anderson departing in free agency. He was an unrestricted free agent. Uh, Anderson, the edge rusher, reportedly agreeing on a deal with the New York Giants who continue to spend uh, I was, you know, they spent big. I mean, Anderson, that's not a big time money acquisition, but the Giants have made a ton of moves, right, over the last uh, week or so. So Ryan Anderson going into his age 27 season was taken by Washington in the second round of the 2017 draft out of Alabama. And Ryan Anderson ends up being another fail of a second round pick by the Washington football team. It really is remarkable the extent to which Washington has flopped with its second round picks over the last decade and a half. Now, all these picks predate Ron Rivera, but take a listen now 
These are the last 10 second round picks for Washington. All right. Close your eyes, cover your ears as I read these names to you. 2008, Washington had three second round picks. Devin Thomas, Fred Davis, Malcolm Kelly. Not very good. Yes. Thank you, Steve Spurrier. 2011, Jarvis Jenkins. Not very good. 2013, David Amerson. Not very good. 2014, Trent Murphy. Now, some people say, well, Trent Murphy was a successful second round pick. No, he wasn't. He he basically had one good season for Washington. That's not a hit of a second round pick. Not very good. Exactly, Coach Spurrier. Thank you. 2015, Preston Smith. Now, Preston Smith to me was a hit as a second round pick. He wasn't great, but he was good. He was incredibly durable here and continues to be durable for the Green Bay Packers. So Preston Smith to me, a hit as a second round pick for Washington. But then have come these latest three second round picks. 2016, Sua Cravens. Not very good. 2017, Ryan Anderson. And 2018, Darius Geis. Not very good. Yes. You tell me, has any team in the NFL done anything worse than Washington has done second round picks over the last decade plus? The last 10 second round picks for Washington, it's been one whiff after another, save for Preston Smith in 2015. And with Ryan Anderson, I mean, he's nowhere near a debacle the way that Sewer Cravens was a debacle, okay? He's nowhere near someone who you say, boy, does that guy have issues the way you say that Sua and Darius Geis have had or have issues. But Anderson ended up not working out. Look, good dude, hard worker. Uh, he is an edge rusher, did set a violent edge, could be very good against the run, but he was not athletic enough to be a dynamic pass rusher. And he just ended up not playing a lot for Washington. Four seasons, he started just four of 52 regular season games in which he played. And he really didn't play that much on defense. His 2017 rookie season, 14 games played on just 17.6% of Washington's defensive snaps. Missed Washington's final two games that season due to a knee injury. 2018, Anderson played in 13 games, but on just 15.8% of Washington's defensive snaps. Uh, Missed three of Washington's final four games that year due to a hamstring injury. Did, though, grade out quite well that season via pro football focus overall grade of 86.8. 2019, Anderson did play in all 16 games and did play on 49.4% of Washington's defensive snaps. But you get the overhaul of the organization after 2019, the switch from a 3-4 base defense to a 4-3 base defense. And Ryan Anderson this past season playing in just nine games and on just 13.9% of Washington's defensive snaps finished the season on injured reserve of having been inactive for the previous three games due to a knee injury that was suffered in that 30-27 loss at the Detroit Lions in week 10. And if you go back to the pro football focus of Anderson for 2020, an overall grade of just 49.6. This did not work out, you know? This was not, I mean, you, you, you can say, well, I like this about Ryan Anderson. You know, I like that about Ryan Anderson. It was not a successful second round pick at all. And of all of the various measures that we can use for whether the Rivera era is working, how about this as a measure? Are you better with your second round picks, okay? Are you hitting on your second round picks better than you've hit on them over the last decade plus? Again, you're basically one for your last 10. The one is Preston Smith. The other nine 
are Devin Thomas, Fred Davis, Malcolm Kelly, Jarvis Jenkins, David Amerson, Trent Murphy, Sua Cravens, Ryan Anderson, and Darius Geis. Not very good. All right, very pleased to welcome the Al Goldie podcast right now. One of our favorites, Washington football team insider Ben Standing of The Athletic DC, the host of the Standing Room Only podcast. Ben, it's great to have you back on, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. I, I, I realized, though, like I need to I may need to upgrade my theme music because I heard you apparently your your theme music is like the talk of the town. Everybody's <laughs> like discussing the, the, the pros and the cons. Mine, I don't know. Nobody says anything. So apparently I need to upgrade on the, the music front. Well, depending on whose opinion you listen to, it may be that you need to downgrade to what I have. So we'll see. I mean, it's, it's you know, some people love it. Some people can't stand it. So that's why it's a topic of conversation. But uh, anyway, so you've been killing it with all the stuff going on with Washington and free agency. I guess why don't we just start with kind of a, a bigger picture question here. The big three acquisitions, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Curtis Samuel, William Jackson the third. Are you as high on what Washington has done in free agency so far as most others are? Uh, how do I say this? Probably not, which isn't to say that I'm not optimistic or don't think their moves are good, but I probably tend to keep, keep things in neutral a little bit and not let it go, let, let it go out of hand. I mean, I think, I mean, to, to sort of take them one by one, Fitzpatrick is sort of obvious, right? I mean, they needed somebody for 2021. It was clear they weren't, well, whatever they like about Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke, they weren't ready to just say, here, these are the starters and we'll figure it out. They obviously tried to get Matthew Stafford, made other calls. And so on. And Fitzpatrick, if you just look in 21, 2021 terms, he was arguably the best guy you could get without, you know, all the other drama, waiting for trades or whatever. And he's, you know, going to throw the ball down the field. He's going to be all kinds of fun for us. Um, so that's all, that's all good. But on the other hand, look, I'm not discounting Ryan Fitzpatrick, who is playing probably the best football of his career, but, you know, there's some ups and downs that, that come with that. He's 38. We'll see what happens. And he's not a long-term answer. They still need that. But I'm kind of dismissing the idea they're going to draft somebody knowing how much Rivera likes Kyle Allen and they re-sign Taylor Heineke pretty quick. I don't think you do that if you're just going to then throw him away in 10 minutes. So I, I'm kind of – the long-term answer we'll see in the short term is positive, but I'm not ready to say that all of a sudden they're great at quarterback. Um, Curtis Samuel obviously like a lot, uh, you know, in terms of they, they needed more speed, your familiarity with Ron Rivera and, and Scott Turner. My sense is that Washington's coaching staff recognizes that the, the, the coaching staff last year in Carolina used Samuel in ways that made him even more effective and took from that that they can use him in different ways as well. So I think that's all positive. They needed more playmaking, more playmaking, more speed on offense. So I think that's all a good thing. And as far as William Jackson goes, obviously he's considered to be one of the better cornerbacks out there. Uh, I guess the question is, how will they use him? Because it just kind of reminds me a little bit of when Josh Norman – came here only from the perspective of if the player was good in this way. So Jackson known more for his man skills, his man cover skills, and Del Rio was playing more zone last year. Del Rio may have just been playing to his talent, which good coaches do. Uh, so we'll see how that, how that meshes. He's obviously a pretty good corner though. Uh, all things being equal, they, you know, more or less replace Ronald Darby, but with hopefully an upgrade on, on their perspective. So like I said, I think all these things are good, but I'm not sitting here going, wow, they, they, here they go. The NFC East is theirs for the taking because all this happened. I think they did good. I think to some degree it was a good drive, you know, up the fairway. And now they have to, you know, what else do they do in the offseason, namely the draft, to see how, you know, how quickly they get the ball in the hole. So with Fitzpatrick, you, you brought it up. You think this, at the very least, significantly lessens the likelihood of Washington drafting a quarterback, certainly, say, on day one or day two. 
I agree with you. That was like one of the first things that struck me that this maybe spoke to how Washington felt about its realistic quarterback draft options. Uh, do you think Washington is done at quarterback? Like this is going to be the mix, Fitzpatrick, Allen, Heineke, or do you think there still could be some other move to come? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to be like, I, 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 I try to leave myself some wiggle room with, with, with answers in some way, because obviously you don't know how the world works. If at 19 or in day two, somebody they like is there that they didn't think about. Sure. Logically you take the guy you can, you can easily get out of Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke's contracts with it, without any real issue. And look, we go back to 2012. I don't know if Mike Shanahan's plan was to draft Kirk Cousins in the fourth round, having already traded up for RG3, but they clearly liked the guy. They felt there was value, and obviously they made the right decision. So you can never say never. That said, all this talk that the Ryan Fitzpatrick move signals they're going to draft a quarterback is preposterous. I think anybody who's saying that is is – I don't know what they're thinking. I mean, again, I'm not saying it's not, it's not possible. It's just saying the likelihood of the scenario that you trade up this seems to go against the grain of what Ron Rivera seems to want to do. You're going to have to give up draft picks for that, and they need more stuff. You, they have a nice – the good thing they've done so far with these three signings is they've put themselves in a position to take advantage of whatever the draft board offers them, and they have four picks in the first three rounds, and you trade up to get a quarterback. Again, a very important position, obviously, but, I mean, to you know, what, to what end? And I, I think they like Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke on some level. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying I think they – I think they do. So, you know, anybody who says, and I've seen this out there on Twitter and otherwise, like, oh, the idea that, well, they'll, if there's value, they'll take it. Yeah. Can I, Mike, can I curse on here? Uh, you can. I, I mean, I don't curse, but I can always bleep oh, you out. Right. So you be you. <laughs> I mean, obviously, no duh. I mean, of course, if, if there's value in <laughs> the most poor position in the game, of course they're going to take the guy. That's not, that's a no brainer. We're talking about what is the plan. And I don't think, I think the plan is this is their quarterback. Unless something is there. There's nothing that tells me because they took Fitzpatrick, they're now actually going to draft a quarterback. I don't buy that at all. We almost just had the first ever curse word uttered on the Al Galdi podcast. That would have been well, something you're, you're, special. You're a, you're a wholesome guy. That's why I wanted to ask. I, 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 you know, I, I'm more of the gutter on my podcast. <laughs> I love it. You work blue on the standing room only podcast. All right. That's how that works. Uh, no, I think so much of what you say makes a lot of sense. And to the idea of Ron likes Allen and Heineke, and I think you're right, I think Ron does, but I think a fascinating test of that is going to be how much of a competition do we have at quarterback? Like, you know, listening to some of these Fitzpatrick interviews that he's given so far, it's been interesting to listen to how he's sort of framed, like, why he signed with Washington and kind of what his thinking is regarding QB1 for 2021. What do you think is going to be the case? Do you think we're going to have an open, honest, good faith competition, Fitzpatrick versus Heineke versus Allen? Or do you think Fitzpatrick has been told, hey, don't pay attention to what we say publicly. You're going to be the guy come 2021. We know that Ron has said that he feels like he erred in not having a quarterback competition last August. Do you think we're going to actually have one this August? I think they will say we have that they're going to have one. Um, I don't believe they're going to have one. In, okay, look, if Kyle Allen, who's coming recovering from a, an ankle injury, uh, or Taylor Heineke comes into camp, wow, look at the growth these guys have made, right? If we're having those conversations, then sure, anything is possible. But you didn't just pay Ryan Fitzpatrick effectively ten plus million dollars while these other guys are combining to make, you know, just a little over two. Um, you're not, you're not doing that to say we're going to have an open competition. Uh, the the idea of the open competition last time was a combination of not anointing Dwayne Haskins 
the starter. And that was one of the things that there were a lot of things that Dwayne Haskins did that caught my attention as to he doesn't get it. One of them was, I recall, when they announced that he was the starter, having at that point just given him the job, Kyle was getting no reps. He made some comment on Twitter, something like, Better, always bet on yourself, which is obviously a reasonable thing to do in life, sure, but it, it showed he didn't understand, no, they just gave it to you. You didn't actually do anything. They just said, here, we, you're the starter, whatever. I think he's saying, Rivera's saying, he's not going to do that again. But that's not the issue with Fitzpatrick, who obviously has battled his entire career. He's never been, he almost has never been said, here, you're the starter. Uh, right, one time in his career, he started all 16 games. So I would imagine whether they said to him, you're the starter or not, it is going to be assumed he is the guy to beat. You're going to have to take it away from him. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to assume that Kyle Allen or Haneke will do that. But, um, you know, I, I think at the same time, both of them have shown puncher's chance of enough to think, ah, well, if they do make some strides for whatever the reason, maybe things could get interesting. It's only a one-year contract for Fitzpatrick, but he has been very good over the last three years. Like, statistically speaking, he's been one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL over the last three seasons. And we are seeing at the quarterback position, right? I mean, albeit all-time greats like Tom Brady and Drew Brees, but this pushing of the envelope of what you're capable of deep into your 30s, if not your 40s. Do you think it's possible Fitzpatrick is a starter here for more than a season? Uh, Sure. I mean, like you said, it's hard to, you know, there's two things now that I've had to change my view. I have to remind myself to change my view on with sports <clears throat> compared to where I was several years ago. One is recovery from injuries. When you see guys like, you know, Kevin Durant, uh, lots of, you know, lots of players come back where you're like an injury that would have, I mean, look, even just Alex Smith to a ridiculous degree, but like the injuries that some of these guys come back from that you wouldn't even notice anymore, whereas 10, 20 years ago would have been a real problem. Um, and the other is age, uh, you know, and particularly at that position where you obviously have to still have a fair amount of athleticism and be able to, you know, do, do some things. But, you know, in the modern NFL where they're not getting touched nearly as much compared to their passive, Fitzpatrick, I think is smart enough to know he's not, he shouldn't be running the ball like he's Lamar Jackson. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's conceivable. I, I wouldn't say it's likely, which is why the idea of drafting another quarterback has some appeal because the likelihood, if you said to me, is the 2022 starter on this team, I would say <laughs> probably not, but I don't, you know, but it could be one of the other guys. So it's conceivable, sure, depending on what happens this year. So while we're talking quarterback, you had such an interesting nugget for the Athletic DC on Monday, and it has to do with a quarterback who we have not mentioned yet in Steven Montez. You know, technically Washington has four quarterbacks, not three. This idea of Steven Montez in a Taysom Hill-like role, I, I think most people were floored when they read that in your report. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was, uh, t- I, I, I joined those who was like, wait, what? When I first, when I first heard about this? Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, obviously Steven Montez is an undrafted free agent quarterback last year. And typically it's pretty rare in this league to go from an undrafted free agent to a viable NFL starter and quarterback or even a backup necessarily. I mean, it happens here and there, but not, not terribly often. So Montez was around last year, obviously on the practice squad. He was elevated to the active roster when injuries happened and he was, you know, on the verge of coming in and playing this, you know, the playoff game when Taylor Heineke uh, got hurt, but ultimately he did not play. And I think the reality is, when everybody looked at the situation, the coaching staff basically said to Montez at the end of the year, look, we like what you're doing. Keep it up as a quarterback. But the quickest path to get on the field is maybe this other thing. 
And the reason, and it's easy to just say, well, go play other position, kid. I mean, you know, but why, why this guy in particular? I mean, he's got good size at 6'4". Uh, he ran a sub 4740 at the combine, which is one of the faster ones in his class. He was a three-year uh, basketball standout in high school, which I know it's, I'm not talking about. We're not, we're not we're not asking him to play for the Wizards. I'm just saying, as a guy who's had some athletic traits, that he can you know be flexible. He was a small forward, so can do some things. He ran sprints his senior year in high school, and he ran the ball a fair amount at Colorado. So he's got the some of the traits that you might think, can we use this person in another way? I mean, basically, this is the, uh, you know, this is the chef special of, of the roster here. We have this thing. We don't, we need to repackage it perhaps in some way to put it on the menu in a, in a way that might be appealing even to us to get him on the roster. And this is that way. I don't think they've given up on him being a, a, a quarterback and his presence is maybe another reason why they're not going to feel compelled to have to draft someone because they already have this kid. I mean, Look, he didn't play in the preseason last year because there was no preseason season. Who knows what would have happened? Maybe he comes in and starts, you know, crushing. He, he was a four-year starter at Colorado. It's not like he was some rube. So maybe he comes in and plays well, and then we're all viewing him as a guy who could be, at, if nothing else, the backup quarterback at some point. But in the, in the interim, because they have these other guys, I think they want to try him in a different way, and it's kind of interesting. Well, if he can play defense, he should play for the Wizards. And if he's on Scott Brooks's roster, he'll play more than Troy Brown Jr. So I, I feel confident in saying that, but that, that's really interesting. And I guess Amantes, it never really occurred to me that he was that athletic. You know, like you kind of just viewed him as, all right, undrafted rookie quarterback, like whatever, but he's got some wiggle to him and he's obviously got size to him. So maybe they can exploit that. Yeah, I, I went back and looked at my notes for something from last year. I talked to uh, Jordan Palmer, the uh, noted quarterback coach, who was here with Washington for 10 minutes, Carson Palmer's uh, younger brother, and he's training Montez, or, you know, he did last year, and he apparently will again this year. And looking back through my notes, like one of the things he mentioned was he's a good enough athlete to be able to play in, in this league. And he talked about some of the other quarterback aspects, but the athlete part came up and, you know, it doesn't come up with every quarterback. I'm pretty sure Tom Brady's original uh, resume didn't, wasn't talking about his athleticism. So um, yeah, look, I just think, look, I have no idea. None of us do about whether Steven Montez can do this. I don't think the team has any idea whether he can do this, but I like the fact that they're like, okay, well, these are the pieces of, this is what we have. We have all these players and what can we do? What's the best way we can use these players, and they're not just being overly conventional and saying, well, this guy's fourth on the depth chart. We'll see. Like, okay, well, he's interesting in these other ways. Can we do something about this? He's willing? Okay, well, then now let's go for this, take another step further. How, how far can we go with this? And I think that's going to be an interesting storyline if this thing does progress um, into the summer. Yeah, I think that's a really smart way of trying to maximize your roster. I mean, that's what good teams do. You, you see what you have, and you try to do the best you can with it. So we're pretty clearly now into the second wave of NFL free agency. You know, the remaining needs for Washington are pretty obvious, right? You'd say linebacker, tight end, uh, receiver, perhaps, corner, safety. Linebacker, though, is the one that really stands out. I, I mean, I, pretty safe to say, right? I mean, Washington is going to make some moves here in the second wave of free agency at the linebacker spot, correct? You would think they're going to add some pieces somewhere else in the offseason. The draft sets up nicely for them if they want to, either at 19 or in day two, just based on the board. So that's obviously one way to go. But, sure, I mean, you know, again, Ron Rivera talked about uh, multiple times, but he said that recently that the one way he wants he, he wants to view the draft is it's not just obviously getting the best. I'm sorry, let me back up. 
how he views free agency. It's not just obviously getting the star players like they just added, but it's also filling in the holes enough so that when you get to the draft, you're not feeling like, wow, we're screwed. We have to go do X, Y, or Z. Um, so I think they probably need to get one more player at linebacker to avoid that feeling. You have Cole Holcomb. You have John Bostic. They lost Kevin Pierre-Lewis. So at a minimum, regardless of what maybe if we think about John Bostic playing every snap, and maybe that's not the wisest move, but regardless of that, at a minimum, they need another borderline starter or starter to fill in the KPL role. They signed uh, David Mayo, who was with the Giants last two years and had been with Carolina before that. My immediate sense is I don't think he's more than just depth, um, which is fine, but they need more. They have Khalid Hudson they drafted last year, but he really didn't play until the very end of the year. So I think there is a need for one more. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they do sign another veteran just in case, as well as target that high in the draft. They did today announce they were sign- re-signing Jared Norris, but like a lot of guys at the back of the linebacker room, it was you know more of a special teams player than a, a potential, you know, starter or, you know, multi-down player. With tight end, I mean, the need for depth beyond Logan Thomas is pretty obvious. Uh, the other tight ends on the roster, I mean, they played somewhat last year, but like were never targeted. I mean, Logan was like the only tight end thrown to, and he was out there basically game in, game, game out for like 100% of the offensive snaps. What do you think the thinking is at tight end? And do you know, was Washington at all in on the two guys who ended up going to New England, Jonu Smith and or Hunter Henry? Um, I had been told at the time that they were not in play for Johnny Smith. I don't know about Hunter Henry. Um, on the assumption that they wanted to get Samuel and were probably not going to spend more than money to get two of these guys, I'm going to guess they were leaning towards Samuel over those other t- players, but I'm not sure. Um, what's the plan of tight end? Man, I tell you what, it is frustrating for me because I keep every year, I think, well, I have to do. <laughs> They have to do more here than they have. I mean, I didn't think Logan Thomas was more than just the, like I just said, with agency, like, okay, well, we have something, so maybe we don't have to panic in the draft, but I couldn't imagine they thought, well, Logan Thomas will be our starter. I'm sure he exceeded all expectations uh, by, by a factor of 100. They need to get more. I, I think they do like Tamara Hemingway, who, who played some last year before he got hurt, and there's a couple of other dart throws that they have. Still around, Jeremy Sprinkle's a free agent. I'm, uh, you know, I'd be surprised if he comes back. But if he does, it probably indicates how little they liked the free agent options out there. The draft, you know, it's not a deep draft. Obviously, everybody knows about Kyle Pitts, the tight end from Florida. He'll be gone long before 19. And then after that, there's not, you know, there are some guys to consider, but it's not like a deep group. It doesn't appear. So they could certainly grab somebody there. And like, you know, again, with those uh, three picks on day two, I would not. I think one, a tight end would make a lot of sense. But on the other hand, um, I thought that last year, and they didn't do that, which was both a sign of not panicking, not overreacting, and, and following your board. On the other hand, as you said, they had one tight end last year. Everybody else was basically just bodies. Yeah, 100%. Um, and if Logan stays healthy, great. But even if you believe in the player, if he gets hurt, you know what are you looking at at tight end for next season? So uh, pretty clearly something that they want to add to. So we on Tuesday. He's also a free, sorry, he's also a free agent at the end of this yep. year. So if, if they don't extend him, and I'm I'm assuming we'll hear at least of one or two extensions, at uh, some point here, probably after the draft. Um, then yeah, and then what's the plan for for the year after that? When it comes to the secondary, you know, you had of course the emergence of Cameron Curl. You did get some good play from DeShazer Everett late in the season. You got good play from Jeremy Reeves. 
What do you think the plan is for Landon Collins? I mean, he's been pretty vocal about, I'm not moving to linebacker. Like, I am a safety. They're obviously paying him a ton of money. Cutting him this offseason hasn't happened and probably won't happen. You're not at that point yet in the contract. Do you, do you think they just play three safeties a lot in 2021? Do you think Landon does end up being an odd man out? What do you think the approach is going to be with him off what went down last year? I mean, for one, I guess we have to wait and see. They have to wait and see how he's recovering from his Achilles injury because obviously that's a pretty significant injury. I did just mention that, that players seem to come back better than, you know, without much harm. So we'll see how he looks there. And then, yeah, Cameron Curl obviously played very well in his place. Now they were using Cameron Curl as that big nickel before the Landon Collins injury. So to get him on the field, so they were effectively using three safeties a lot um, last year. And I would imagine at a minimum, we'd see that again. Could Curl move to free safety? Maybe. It, it, it felt like every time we asked about that, that last year, they didn't really kind of rush to, to that. Um, they do have Jeremy Reeves and DeShazer Everett. I think both of them, again, sort of gives them like, all right, well, maybe this is this is not our answer long term, but are they good enough if we, just whatever the reason, we can't figure, we can't solve this issue? Sure, probably enough. I mean, you can't realistically solve all your problems in one off season. So, I, I, I imagine if we if we go into the year with Collins, Curl, Reeves, Everett, that's the safeties. I mean, I'm not again. I'm not saying wow, this is amazing. Although the bar around here for safeties has been so low for so long that that sounds like a pretty uh, Hall of Fame group right there. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I keep mentioning these these uh, picks in day two. There are some free safeties in that range that 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 could make sense if if, if Washington likes them. Um, I know everybody wants to mention Trey Boston. Uh, because of the Carolina ties, by law, every Carol, anybody who ever came through Carolina um, has to be mentioned here. Um, my sense is, if there's interest, not sure there is, but if there is, it's going to be like, well, we'll see where we're at after the draft and, and circle back then. And, of course, that is something to consider. There will be another wave of free agency after the draft, and that's where maybe they can pick some guys up. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if I answered your actual Landon Collins question. I guess it's like a lot of wait and see, and I just – I, I just think it would be overly complicated to say land. He's not moving positions and it'd be overly complicated to say, Hey, you're now coming off the bench. I just, uh, I, I, at the start at the minimum, I would imagine he's the starter and they work curling in around that. We on Tuesday had the news that Ryan Anderson has agreed to sign with the giants. You know, I, I thought of you cause it was like a year or so ago, right? That you wrote about how Washington should explore trading Anderson and, Boy, would that have been nice given what ended up happening where it was just, you know, kind of another underwhelming season for this guy off having been a 2017 second round pick, you know, another failed second round pick for Washington. It's been some kind of run here over the last 10 plus years. Ultimately, why would you say it didn't work out for Ryan Anderson with Washington? Um, yeah, I was debating doing a victory lap for half a second there. Um, <laughs> um well, I mean, I guess, look, I mean, he did, the reason, so I guess just to go back to that point, a year ago, I looked at the landscape and said, okay, it's pretty obvious, he's not going to play, because you have Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Ryan Kerrigan, he, he's not going to be on the field, so if he's not going to play, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying he, he, he didn't literally not play, but if he's not going to play with any regularity, why would you try to trade and get anything, a seventh round pick, because as what turned out, they got nothing, and they're going to like it, right? I think that I think going to the four three did not help his cause. He had a better year, you know, the year before playing in a three four scheme. I and mean, we don't view him as like some like you know crazy edge blitzer off uh, coming from the outside, but he seemed to be more effective in that. And my understanding was 
that he was going to look for a team to sign to join that was going to run a three four. The Giants run a three four, so that part seems to, to to mesh. I mean, I like Ryan Anderson. He always looked, I think, maybe looked the part more than he played the part. Big strong guy. Wasn't highly productive in terms of the stats, but obviously I think he did a, do, do a pretty good job in 2019, and that's why the idea of trading him people were aghast because he seemed to be on the uptick. And like I said, I was just trying to take the realist approach, and that it turned out to be the case. So, yeah, hopefully he does some good things for the Giants at a minimum. It looks like we'll see him in the division, and it will be interesting to see if the coaching staff has a feel how to deploy, uh, you know, whether it's Logan Thomas or Antonio Gibson against him uh, in coverage and things like that. Yeah, um, it would have taken some foresight, but it would have been a smart thing to do. Um, you know, I mean, unless a bunch of guys got hurt, it, it never really felt like Anderson was going to play a lot last season. I know there was some talk of, well, maybe he moves to linebacker in a 4-3, but that pretty clearly didn't happen. Like, he, he was, you know, he's kind of been like a man without a position over his time here. Uh, so no doubt. I mean, if they could have gotten anything for him, um, certainly. Hindsight being 50-50, as Steve Spurrier once said, that would have been the way to go. Anyway, Ben, uh, great stuff. The Athletic DC, it's a must read if you're a Washington football team fan. Ben's got all kind of, kinds of good content. And of course, the Standing Room Only podcast. Always enjoy it. All the best. I appreciate it. I'll just say really quick, you can subscribe right now for like a dollar a month, but just click on one of my articles. Don't, don't help my, don't help my colleagues. Screw them. Look at their, let them, let them do their own thing. Go, go sign up with one of my other ones and then we'll go that way. Boost Ben's metrics. Boost yes. Ben's numbers. Click on his articles. Subscribe for a buck. You can't beat that. Take care, man. Thanks, man. See ya. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from C. Wellian. On Tuesday night, C. Wellian is a big Wizards fan, or at least a big Wizards observer. I'm, I'm not sure how much of a fan he is these days, but tweeted C. Wellian, <laughs> the damn Washington Wizards, ugh, I love this. They stink and don't have any clue what they're doing. No, C. Wellian, no, they do not have any clue. The damn Washington Wizards. Thank you, Stephen A. A completely putrid performance by the Wizards. On Tuesday night, a 131-113 loss at the New York Knicks. Ninth loss in 11 games for the Wizards. They fall to 15-27. and They have, as we speak on this Wednesday, the third worst record in the Eastern Conference. An Eastern Conference that has just four teams with winning records. That's it. The East, again, is so much worse than the West this NBA season. And you have right now a mere four teams in the East with winning records. Philadelphia 76ers, Brooklyn Nets, Milwaukee Bucks, and Atlanta Hawks. That's it. The Wizards in this Eastern Conference, this lowly weak Eastern Conference, 15 and 27, third worst mark in the conference, five and a half games behind the Boston Celtics for eighth in the Eastern Conference. And oh, by the way, this terrible performance by the Wizards on Tuesday night It comes in what was the Wizards' final game before the NBA trade deadline. The trade deadline is Thursday afternoon at 3 Eastern. If the Wizards were looking to put forth a performance to convey a message of, hey, you know what, we're not that bad. And hey, you know what, especially in this Eastern Conference, we can make a charge up the standings. Uh, That message not conveyed, not at all. On Tuesday night. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. The game, a disaster for the Wizards. The Wizards did not lead in any of the final three quarters. The Wizards led in the first quarter 14-8 and then allowed the Knicks to go on an 80-43 run. The Wizards in the second half never trailed 
by fewer than 17 points. And I don't want to hear about, oh, you know, Wizards are banged up. You know, Davi Spurtons is out with this right calf strain. I don't want to hear about that. Spurtons has been bad this season. And the Burton's absence, you know, the Thomas Bryant absence, uh, neither of those justify the dreck that was on display on Tuesday night. The Wizards' defense was atrocious. And, and that's saying something for the Wizards, right? But this was an especially atrocious performance by the Wizards defensively. Zero physicality, okay? The Wizards offered zero resistance to the Knicks. The Knicks shot 51.1% from the field including 16 of 30 on threes. The Wizards allowed Julius Randle to go 7 of 10 on threes. The Wizards give up 131 points, 108 of which were scored over the first three quarters. The Knicks had 108 points in the game over just the first three quarters. The Wizards allowed the Knicks to score 39 points in the first quarter, 39 points in the third quarter. And I tell you what, beyond just the awful defense, and my God, it was awful, and my God, Scott Brooks cannot get these guys to play defense to save his life. But beyond that, Bradley Beal was not good for a second consecutive game. You know, Beal was really bad in the Wizards' most recent game prior to last night's, the 113-106 loss at the Brooklyn Nets on Sunday night. Uh, Beal not good again on Tuesday night, just 6 of 15 from the field, committed five turnovers finished with just 22 points, finished with a game-worst plus-minus rating of minus 20. Here was some appeal during his virtual post-game press conference. Well, I don't think we arrived to the arena tonight, honestly. We, we were still in the hotel today. And we, we didn't bring any focus, any energy, any, and we damn sure didn't play defense. So that's why we lost. In the second half, we didn't, we didn't play defense in the half either. Yeah, and of course, he's not wrong in saying that, but I always get a kick out of this, and, and Beal does this a lot, where the Wizards will have an awful defensive performance, and then he'll come out during his post-game press conference, and he'll acknowledge that. He'll say, yeah, you know, we were terrible defensively. And it's like, he always will talk about the defense having been bad. He always will acknowledge that the defense needs to be better, but he seemingly doesn't do anything about it. You know, like, I, I get a kick out of the way Beal gets treated, especially by the local media. Like, yes, Bradley Beal is an awesome scorer, and he's a very good player. I'm not trying to tell you otherwise. But he's, like, totally absolved from the Wizards' problems. And, and people talk about, like, well, Bradley Beal's great, but the rest of the team stinks. It's like, Bradley Beal's great offensively. But Bradley Beal is a part of the team defense. Like, it's only 5-on-5 five five in basketball, right? It's not 11-on-11. 11 11. Like, you're a part of the awful defense that the Wizards put out there all the time. And also there's this. If you're truly a superstar, if you're truly a difference maker, if you're truly an alpha, you get your teammates to play better defensively. And he doesn't do that. Now, I think the bad defense rests on guys not putting forth more effort. And I think a lot of that does have to do with Scott Brooks, okay? So like if we're identifying the chief culprits for the Wizards' embarrassing defense, it starts with others not doing their job. It starts with Scott Brooks not getting others to do their jobs. But to just sit here and say, like, Bradley Beal has nothing to do with it, I think it's being really naive. And so I get a kick out. It's like, well, we played no defense. Yeah, no kidding. What are you going to do about it? How come nothing ever gets done about it? So I got a kick out of that from Beal. The other thing from Beal was this, him talking about 
his Wizards not playing with more effort. Take a listen. You got to have heart. Can't teach that. You got to have dog. Can't teach that either. So uh, you, you got to be mentally ready to go. Like this is best league in the world, you know. It uh, doesn't get any higher than this. And if you can't get yourself ready to play every night, then you shouldn't be here. Even if it isn't your night. Yeah, again, Beal isn't wrong. But again, how come Beal can't change any of this? How come Beal can't will his teammates to have more heart, to have more dog? You know, we all watched the last dance. And I mean, one of the things that's undeniable, right, is the extent to which Michael Jordan willed his teammates to do as they needed to do. Now, I know it's MJ. He's the GOAT, all right? Beal isn't that good. But man, if you're an NBA superstar, you're getting paid max contract money as Bradley Beal is. You are a leader of the team five on five. It's not 11 on 11. Like you make a difference. You can get guys to be better. You yourself can be better, certainly defensively. Do it. Let's see it. Why don't we see more of it? Everyone focuses on Bradley Beal scoring, and he's a very good scorer, although he certainly hasn't been the last two games here. But yeah, he can score. But how about being more of a true superstar, a true leader, a true impactor, a true influencer on your team? You're not seeing that with Bradley Beal. He's not the Wizards' biggest problem. But let's also stop with this canonizing of Beal and, oh, poor Bradley, he's got to deal with all this. No, he's also a part of this, okay? Let's start speaking some truth when it comes to that. Uh, Russell Westbrook was not good on Tuesday night. Three of 14 shooting, just 14 points, did have 12 assists versus four turnovers. I mean, look, it's pointless to go through who did what, right? The team was horrendous defensively. And this does bring me back to Scott Brooks. I don't know how the Wizards continue on with Scott Brooks beyond this season. You know, I mean, I, I guess we'll see what ends up happening as the season goes on. But it's the final season of his contract. He makes a lot of money, even by NBA coach standards. Okay, he's got he's getting seven million dollars per year, and he can't get these guys to d up. It is inexcusable. You know, and, and I know it's the NBA and it's a players' league, and that is true. But that doesn't mean that good coaching can't get teams to be better than they have been or that they should be. You know, Brad Stevens with the Celtics has been an example of that over the years. The team that eviscerated the Wizards on Tuesday night, the Knicks, an example of that. The job that Tom Thibodeau is doing as New York Knicks head coach, tremendous. And what is Tom Thibodeau known for? Defense, instilling defense in his teams, demanding that his teams play physical, play tough, play well defensively. The Wizards haven't had that in forever. And there's actually some irony in this because Tom Thibodeau years ago was supposed to come on board to be like essentially the Wizards defensive coordinator under Eddie Jordan. That ended up not happening. And you wonder how much different things might have been had Thibodeau been brought on board. Because yeah, old Thibs, he does run his teams into the ground. But yeah, also from old Thibs is him being a master at getting his teams to D up. It can be the case. Defense to me, it's like 80 to 85% effort slash coaching. That is to say that if you command defense as a coach, if you demand defense as a coach, you can get guys to be good defensively because they'll play harder. They'll play tougher. They'll play smarter. They'll communicate better. You don't have that with the Wizards. You haven't had that with the Wizards in a very long time. It's not coming anytime soon. And my God, that performance on Tuesday night was pitiful. A classic Wizards performance in the final game before the trade deadline. The damn 
Washington Wizards. We move now to the Nationals, and something very significant happened on Tuesday. So Carter Keboom, right? He's supposed to be the Nationals' third baseman this upcoming season. He certainly has been talked about as the Nats' starting third baseman going into this 2021 season. We heard about this during the offseason, heard about this during spring training. But Carter Keboom has struggled big time this exhibition season. There's no doubt about that. Carter Keboom has had an awful Grapefruit League season. Carter Keboom, as we speak on this Wednesday, 38 plate appearances this exhibition season, a 167 batting average, a 211 on base percentage, a 278 slugging percentage. It has not gone well for Carter Keboom as a batter, and he has had some issues in the field as well. And so it was supremely notable on Tuesday that Starlin Castro and not Keboom was the Nats starting third baseman for what ended up being a five-all exhibition tie with the St. Louis Cardinals on Tuesday afternoon. Now, you know, you could look at this and say, well, come on. I mean, we're getting close to the regular season. Um, you're not just going to have the same guy play all 162 games, more likely than not, as a starting third baseman. So you want to develop some depth. Okay. But Starling Castro had not even been taking ground balls at third base. Davey Martinez has been very consistent over the last year plus. And Starling Castro is much better as a second baseman than as a third baseman. That certainly is the Nationals' preference, and the defensive metrics back that up. Starling Castro has actually been a good defensive second baseman in recent years. That's been his best position. Said Davey in his pregame Zoom press conference on Tuesday, this doesn't mean anything. We just want to see what this looks like right now. Carter's going to get an opportunity to play third base. We'll see how it looks. This is the last week. We've got to hone in on some things. No decisions have been made yet, but we want to make sure we take the 26 best guys that we can possibly take, end quote. Uh, okay, on the one hand, Davey starts out that answer by saying this doesn't mean anything. But on the other hand, Davey concludes that answer by talking about how we need to take the 26 best guys that we can possibly take, i.e. it's not a given that Carter Keboom even makes the ball club. It could be that Carter Keboom begins the season in the minors. Now, it's worth mentioning this. Castro got hurt in the exhibition game on Tuesday. We don't know how serious this is, but he suffered, as he put it, a little cramp and a hamstring and left the game. So maybe it does turn out that Carter Keboom is a starting third baseman come opening night, April 1st, against the New York Mets at Nationals Park. But that's not the point. Here we are again, Carter Keboom, off us having been told that he's going to be the starting third baseman, now looks like anything but a certainty to be the starting third baseman. This is exactly what happened in 2020. Davey was telling anyone who would listen going into 2020 spring training that Carter Keboom was going to be the guy at third base. Heck, Davey on July 4th of last year said that as of right now, he expected Carter Keboom to be the Nats starting third baseman. And Davey added, quote, I anticipate in a 60 game season that he's going to go out there and play every day, end quote. But then came some actual games. And the Nats, when they had that summer camp, right, the restart, uh, one of their exhibition games was a game against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on July 18th. That game had Isdrubal Cabrera as opposed to Keboom as the Nats starting third baseman. Davey ended up backtracking on his previous declarations that Keboom would be the starting third baseman. Said, quote, both of those guys are going to play third base. They know that, end quote. And looky, looky, what ended up happening when the 2020 regular season finally got going. Cabrera, not Keboom, was the Nats starting third baseman for each 
of the first five games of the season. Okay, now Keeboom was said to be dealing with a groin issue at the time. Okay, fine. But that's not the point. Carter Keeboom was not the starting third baseman to begin the season. Carter Keeboom ended up having a really bad 2020 season, so much so that he got optioned to the Nats alternate training side in Fredericksburg, Virginia on August 26th. Keeboom was brutal last season. 202 batting average, 344 on base percentage, 212 slugging percentage. So the on base was actually pretty good. Actually drew 17 walks last year, but the batting average, woeful. The slugging percentage, even worse. He gets optioned to the Nats alternate training site, which is essentially the equivalent of being optioned to the minors because there was no minor league season last year. And Carter Keeboom, bottom line, 60 Nationals games in 2020, played in just 33 of them. So we got told one thing, and the exact opposite ended up being the case. Carter Keeboom was not the Nats' everyday third baseman. This offseason, this spring training, it's, yeah, Carter Keeboom. Yeah, he's going to be our regular, everyday starting third baseman. And now, all of a sudden, it looks like the plug is being yanked once again. So what's happening here? What's going on here? Well, A, clearly, Carter Keeboom has not performed well. Uh, I read to you his offensive numbers this exhibition season. They're really bad. You know, he's been hit and miss, Keeboom has been, in the field at third base. I do wonder also if there's maybe something behind the scenes going on. You know, if, if maybe Davey and Mike Rizzo don't like Keeboom's attitude or don't like his work ethic. I mean, we just don't know. But, I mean, Davey and, and Mike, I mean, they're not stupid, okay? They, like, they wouldn't keep saying these things about Keeboom of he's going to be our guy and then pulling the plug on him if there wasn't good reason to do so. So I think you have to wonder about that. Like, the, Davey and Mike are privy to things that we are not. So maybe they're seeing things behind the scenes that uh, Davey and Mike don't like. You know, we just don't know that. But you do have to wonder about something like that. But I'll tell you this, the Nats did nothing at third base in the offseason, right? Like, if, if you had real concerns about Carter Keeboom this past offseason, you would have brought in competition for Keeboom at third base. Or you would have brought in a, another viable option to be your everyday third baseman. And the Nats really didn't do that. I mean, they re-signed Josh Harrison. He can play third base, but he's more of a super utility guy then he is like an actual every game third baseman. And to that end, it's Starling Castro starting at third base yesterday, not Josh Harrison. Uh, this is definitely worth monitoring. And this is to me not a good sign in any way about where we're headed here with Carter Keeboom. Understand Carter Keeboom was taken by the Nats with the 28th overall pick in the 2016 draft. We are now on the doorstep of a second consecutive season in which we are told Keeboom is going to be the every game third baseman, and then he ends up not being the every game third baseman. He is 0 for 2, Keeboom is, in terms of how he has performed at the major league level. He ended up being really bad in his brief stint at the major league level in 2019, ended up being really bad in 2020. And now what are we to expect in 2021, you know? And if he's bad again in 2021, uh, that is, of course, if he plays in 2021, you really have to wonder at that point, like, is this guy a bust? You know, someone, first round pick, we were told was going to be good. Third baseman of the future. You know, it's part of why the Nats let Anthony Rendon leave via free agency. And they can't even trust him to begin the season as the every game third baseman. Like, it'd be one thing if they gave him the job to start the year and he struggled and then you went away from him. It's another thing that you may be beginning the year without him as the every game third baseman. Like, that's a really big indictment of where you see this guy at right now. So not good, not good at all, this Carter Keeboom situation that came up on Tuesday. Uh, some better news for the Nationals on Tuesday. So John Lester made his second exhibition start of the 2021 Grapefruit League season 
in that tie with the Cardinals. One run in three and two-thirds innings. Uh, no strikeouts versus three hits, all singles, and two walks. So the results ended up being pretty good. He threw 30 of his 51 pitches for strikes. The concern with Lester is that the velocity still isn't very good, but the velocity for last season wasn't very good. So, you know, I, I know like he's hoping for that average fastball velocity to be like in the low 90s. Uh, I don't know that he's getting back to that anymore. Uh, John Lester's average four-seam fastball velocity in 2020 was a career-worst 89.8 miles per hour per Sports Info Solutions. So that just may well be where he's at right now in terms of the velo, uh, as the saying goes in baseball. And, you know, this is a concern with Lester. He's not a swing and miss guy anymore, right? He doesn't have swing and miss stuff anymore. So he's going to be putting balls in play. Uh, again, no strikeouts over three and two-thirds innings on Tuesday. This is, again, why the Nationals' defense being good matters a lot. You know, it's one thing when high strikeout guys like Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg are pitching, but when you have lower strikeout guys like John Lester and Joe Ross pitching, it matters that your defense is good behind those pitchers. It matters that your defense is capable of turning balls in play into outs. And the Nats defensively, we've talked about this, have not been good for a long time. We're really bad in 2020. That defense needs to be better uh, in 2021. And this is part of why Starling Castro moving to third base, if in fact that's what's happening here, that is a big deal. Starling Castro has been a plus defender at second base over the last two seasons. 2019-2020, Starling Castro, a combined plus four defensive run saved at second base. If you're putting him at third base, you're weakening yourself defensively at second base and potentially also at third base. That's a big deal. So, you know, the, 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 there's a domino effect with these things. You know, Carter Keboom not panning out, or that's going away from Carter Keboom. It's not just about Carter Keboom. It's about what that means for others and, and the impact that has on various positions. Uh, Joe Ross did pitch on Tuesday as well, pitched in relief, uh, two runs in four and two-thirds innings on four hits, a double and three singles, and no walks versus two strikeouts. He threw 47 of his 68 pitches for strikes. But this now brings us to the other major development for the Nationals, and that is this Eric Fetty news. So you have in baseball what are called minor league options. It's very confusing because an option isn't just like a one-time thing. An option lasts for an entire season. And when you have a minor league option, that allows a team to demote you to the minors, bring you up from the minors as many times as that team wants over the course of a season. Most guys only have three minor league options, but there are some scenarios that dictate a guy have four minor league options. We thought that Eric Fetty had a fourth minor league option. MLB rules dictate that a team gets a fourth minor league option for a player when he has exhausted all three of his minor league options despite having not completed five full seasons. And the season is defined as 90 or more days on an active major league or minor league roster. The Nats in 2020 didn't use their fourth minor league option on Fetty. actually kept him at the major league level for the entire season. The confusion here has had to do with whether that shortened 2020 constituted a full season. The season was fewer than 90 days in length, but service time and salary were prorated. Fetty and his agent, who just happens to be Scott Boris, argued that Fetty, because he had spent the 2020 season on the Major League roster for the maximum time possible, 67 days, now had five full seasons, voiding that fourth minor league option. And it turns out that an arbiter ruled in Fetty's favor. So he no longer is optionable. He has to clear waivers if you want to send him to the minors. So if the Nats want to go with Joe Ross as a fifth starter, Austin Voth as, say, the long man, because neither of those guys has an option left, 
and demote Fetty to the minors, Fetty's going to have to clear waivers. And maybe Fetty could clear waivers, but Fetty as a first-round pick, albeit all the way back in 2014, especially in a pitching-starved sport like baseball, uh, there's a good chance he wouldn't clear waivers. Do you want to risk losing Fetty, especially when you, as the Nationals, do lack starting pitching depth? You know, again, domino effect. The Nats don't have a lot of starting pitching depth. They've not done a good job of drafting and developing pitching in recent years. And one of the impacts of that is, yes, you get in a situation like this where you can no longer option Fetty to the minors without him clearing waivers. Um, if you lose him by waivers, it's not like you're oozing with other people you can turn to here. So this is going to handcuff the Nats, at least to some extent, when it comes to setting the season opening roster. Now, as we discussed, there are some questions about the bullpen in terms of who's going to be available, right? Will Harris, the blood clot in the right arm. But this isn't good, this Eric Fetty news that emerged on Tuesday. And it is going to restrict what Mike Rizzo can do when putting together what the Nats look like to begin the season. Hopefully, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, John Lester, Joe Ross stay healthy for the entire year. But we all know how this works. That's probably not going to happen. You need pitching depth, especially starting pitching depth. And if you lose Eric Fetty via waivers, yes, he hasn't been very good, but that's an option to start some games, eat up some innings for you when you don't have many options to begin with. All right, that'll do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming, your comments, your questions, your complaints. Let me have it. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. We, we didn't bring any focus, any energy, any, and we damn sure didn't play defense. The damn Washington Wizards. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.